please turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. If you have a smartphone, you can look it up. We are in the English Standard Version, the ESV. And uh, this this morning, we're, we're continuing part four of our series on uh, the book of Philippians. I decided to call this... Uh, I decided to call the series The Pursuit of Joy, because joy is one of the key themes of this letter. And it presents to us a man called the Apostle Paul, who's around about 60 years old at the time of writing, and he is writing to a church in Philippi in modern-day Greece, and Paul is in jail. He is in prison. This church at Philippi was founded by the Apostle Paul. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And nine years into this church being started, they're facing a lot of difficulty. They're facing a lot of adversity. They're facing poverty. And they are, uh, in many ways, discouraged. They're asking themselves, should we keep going? Is the Christian life really worth it? And Philippians presents to us a man in very difficult circumstances, yet abounding with joy. We said that to have joy is to be exceedingly glad in your heart. But the difference between happiness and joy is that happiness can be taken from you in a moment. My son playing with a balloon, he is very happy. When he pops that balloon, he is sad. It can be taken in a moment. But joy is different because it's not tied to our circumstances. None of us would be happy in jail like Paul. But Paul is able to have joy as he thinks upon the great work of Jesus Christ. And he's applying and pulling out implications of the fact that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, came into this world to save sinners. He lived a a perfect life, died upon a cross as a substitute for our sin, and on the third day rose again. That is the good news, that when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we might be reconciled to God, have our sins forgiven. Paul is pulling out implications of that wonderful gospel message. So last week we saw that Paul says to these people, yeah, I'm in jail, but it's actually a good thing. Because the jailers who are keeping me in prison have heard about Jesus Christ and they know they're there for me. And all the people that are Christians that are around me are made more bold by the fact that I am pressing on despite my difficult circumstances. And very specially he says that his attitude is that in everything Jesus Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. That's what's keeping him going. He's not worried ultimately about his own reputation. He is worried about serving his Lord Jesus Christ. So we come this morning to verse 21. We're going to go verses 21 to 26 of Philippians chapter 1. And verse 21, the first verse that we read, is one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Let's start by reading it. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word to us. I had considered just looking at verse 21, and we'll stay there today, but I think it is helpful to include those next five verses because it shows that despite Paul having joy, and despite this wonderful truth of to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul is still struggling. And that comes out in those next five verses. Paul's not sitting in prison with a gigantic smile on his face, thinking that everything is completely rosy. He has joy, yes, but things are still difficult, and he has one main struggle. We'll see what that is. So let's, we're going to spend most of our time in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Joy in life and in death. What does this man Paul have to say to us about life and death? I think there's a real danger that this verse gets turned into something that we just assume the meaning of and we skim right past it. We just look at the surface. It is very rich. It is very deep. And many of us will read this verse as having two propositions. We see uh, to live is Christ, and then on the other side, to die is gain. And we view it as a one sentence in two parts. It's really not. It really is one main proposition tied to Jesus Christ. We could sum it up this way. We could sum up what Paul's actually trying to say here. He's saying, Christ is gained to me in life and in death. Christ is not just attached to life. He is attached to death also. He is attached to both those clauses, life and death. And so we could summarize the meaning as being, Christ is gained to me in life and even greater in death. Because of Christ, there is gain in life and in death. However, saying Christ is gain to me in life and even greater in death would not make it one of the most memorable verses in the world today, okay? And that's not what it says, so we can be thankful for that. But that's what it means. That's what Paul's getting at. And that really helps us get to the bottom of what he is saying. It shouldn't surprise us that knowing Jesus Christ completely enriches both our life and our death. And what we have here, what we have here as a starting point is an application of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is Christ gain in life and in death? Because he rose from the grave. It is because of that truth that Jesus Christ rose again, that he is gain into us in both life and in death. 
I don't mean to assume that every single person in this room is a believer in Christ. I want you to know one thing, though. I am an incredibly, ask my wife, skeptical person. If I was not a Christian, I would be one of those hardcore rationalistic atheists, okay, that complains at you if you don't vaccinate your kids. That's me. I'd be picking fights all over the internet, okay? That's who I am naturally. And the reason I am a Christian was one, because God worked in my heart, but two, I was, what really, really caught me was the truth of the resurrection. I had to believe, and I could not hide the fact that 2,000 years ago, there was a man called Jesus Christ who claimed to be God, and he rose from the dead and was seen by 500 witnesses. I would encourage you, if you're skeptical of that claim, to look into it, because I did. I think it is one of the most trustworthy historical events that can, we can possibly be documented, that a man called Jesus Christ rose from the grave. 500 people saw him. Look into it. That's what I did. And that is why I am convinced that because Christ rose from the grave, Christianity is supremely important. If Christ had not risen from the grave, then Christianity is of no, almost no importance. It is just pithy little quotes that you can put on a coffee mug. It, it's, of no, it's of no value. But because Christ rose again, Christianity is supremely important. And because Christ rose again, to live as Christ and to die is gain. This is an application of the truth of the resurrection. Think about what the Bible says about our human condition. All this comes from the Apostle Paul. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, without hope, and in a rebellion against our Creator and source of life. That is what you can read in Ephesians chapter 2. And yet because Jesus Christ died, because he rose from the grave in newness of life, all who repent of their sins and put their faith, put their trust in him as Lord and Savior, receive the promise that they too will be resurrected after death like Jesus. That is what is being applied here. Because Christ rose from the grave, all those who trust in him will too be resurrected and be like him. And we begin living that reality at the moment of our conversion. John 17, 3, Jesus Christ said, This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ. That eternal life actually begins at our moment of conversion, not our death. Eternal life comes when we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We receive Life, because we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. So we can say that the reason we can agree with Paul that we have gain in life and we have gain in death is because we have received eternal life from the resurrected Jesus. There is even more gain in death. Quite simply, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes Absolutely everything. 
it is the one bit of news that everyone needs to know. So we've seen how it affects both life and death. Let's break those down individually and let's see how it affects life. It says to live is Christ. Clearly Paul believes while he's in jail that knowing Christ brings gain in this life. And he's not in jail because he's a criminal, by the way. He's in jail because of Jesus Christ. And yet he's saying knowing Christ is gain to me. Most of us could be sitting there going, who got me in here? Jesus, blame him. But he's saying, no, he's gain to me. Despite the fact that knowing him put me in jail in the first place. That's amazing. But it shouldn't surprise us. If you are a TV preacher with a private jet, one of the verses you know and you must use all the time is John 10.10. I came that you may have life and life abundant. I love that verse. We, we heard it. I've come that you may have life and life abundant. It gets twisted all the time. I lose my mind at all these charlatans who take the word abundant and then they say, an abundant life is when you have a new car. Jesus died that you might have an abundant life. God wants you to have a new job or a bigger house. Jesus wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. I wonder what Paul has to say to that while he is writing in a jail in Rome somewhere. Not exactly living a victorious life, is he? Abundance. I'm like um, Nigo Montoya. I always quote him from The Princess Bride. He says, You keep using that word abundant, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Back to being serious. What did Jesus come to give that ensures abundant life? Was it a new car? Was it a new house? Was it perfect health in this life? No. He came to give himself to ensure abundant life. Himself. To live is Christ. Abundant life is a life attached to Christ. That's what he came to give to, so that we might have life abundant. Himself. To live is Christ. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. Paul again says, Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. All of our needs, righteousness, we are sinners, sanctification, that we might grow in godliness and redemption, complete healing from all the effects of sin. All of those things come in Christ, because you are in Christ, because you are attached to Him, because you are in union with Him, because He is your Lord and Savior. Paul says, you are given His Holy Spirit, you are given righteousness, because He is the Son of God, you are adopted into the Father's household, and you become His children, and He cares for you and protects you. 
because you're in Christ, you live for Christ, and you have the goal of bringing honor to him in life and in death. So that's why Paul says to live is Christ. Because all the blessings, all the things we need are found in Christ. So what is real life then? Real life is knowing Christ. Real life is serving Christ. Real life is glorifying Christ. Real life is enjoying Jesus Christ and being in fellowship and communion with Christ. All in Him. And I want to answer an objection that flows comes out of that. Maybe it's spoken, maybe it's not. But there's an idea that to, to live as Christ means you can only enjoy Christ and you can only enjoy spiritual things. Fair enough? Some people think that way. Everything we do must be Christian, otherwise it is unworthy of being part of the Christian life. The idea that leads to that is that spiritual things and Christian things are, are good, and on the other side, physical things such as working and marriage and eating are bad. Some people hold to that view. That's why there was ascetic monasteries. People would go lock themselves up in a windowless building somewhere and spend all their time praying and reading scripture and meditating and doing all those kind of things and trying to live a very simple life. And that was their expression of to live as Christ. Shut yourself off from everything else in the world that's worldly. I don't think that's what this is saying. And I know that none of us probably think that way, but we might take a less extreme view of that and we say that we must Christianize absolutely everything. If Christ is our life, everything in it must be Christian. So we must only work Christian jobs, living in Christian houses, listening to Christian music, watching movies about the resurrection and death of Christ only, driving our Christian car with a silly little fish on the back bumper sticker. And that's what it means to live the Christian life. I don't think that is helpful either. By the way, if you want to have that fish on the back of your car, please do it. Go go for it. Just just don't get the one with the, the, the Darwin fish with the, you know, the... Um, the little, like, coming onto land, it's got the feet, and then you've got the Christian fish eating the Darwin fish, please don't get that. No person goes, oh, evolution is wrong because they see that bumper sticker, okay? What does it mean to live as Christ? What does it mean to live as Christ? Does it mean we can only enjoy Christian things? No. God is much greater than that. What we do is we recognize that Christ is the creator of all things and that we've been living in rebellion to him. We drop our rebellion. We trust in him as Lord and Savior. And we recognize that everything in this world was created through Christ and for him. Why do you have a job? For Christ. Why do you have a marriage? For Christ. 
Why do you get to enjoy watching a game of rugby or soccer or whatever it is that you like doing? Why do you get to enjoy gardening? Ultimately, for the sake of Jesus Christ's name, because he is Lord of all. So it doesn't mean we try and Christianize everything, but instead we recognize that Christ is at the center of our lives, and everything that we enjoy, we enjoy through him. When you eat, when was the last time you had a meal that made you worship? Because you're acknowledging that, wow, that wonderful steak or that, I don't know, I, I don't know any vegetarian things, but whatever, whatever it is, it makes you go, oh, God gave me that through Christ. It's not worldly to enjoy watching a movie. It's not worldly to enjoy eating a meal. It's not worldly to enjoy having a relationship with someone. You enjoy all of those things because you have Christ. Providing it is not against God's law, you can bring glory to the Lord for that as you live your day-to-day -day life. Does that make sense? That's what it means to live as Christ. That He is the center. I don't say that you make Christ number one in your life. Because who is worthy of being number two? He is the center and everything is seen from the vantage point of Christ. You can give thanks to him because he is your Lord and Savior. To say that to live as Christ is to agree with the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 that Christ is your life. Everything good that you have has come to you from him. When we say to live as Christ, we might as well say that my life has no meaning apart from Christ because he is the giver of life and is my life and I have all things through him. Amen. Death. Die is gain, Paul says. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. This one boggles my mind the more I think about it. I want to give you the big idea here. Most of us are petrified of death, are we not? We don't want to think about it. How often do you think about death? Probably not a lot. Some of you probably think, possibly think about it all the time. But regardless of how often you think about death, no one likes death for the sake of death. No one likes death for the sake of death. Even an incredibly depressed person only likes the idea of death because they believe it will set them free from their depression. Death is a means to an end. That's important. Death on its own is terrifying. No one desires death simply because they want death. They desire to get away from the troubles of this life. Fair enough? That's obvious. On the other hand, the reason we don't desire death is we would rather continue to have our lives and everything in it. Fair enough? You don't want death because you want to stay with what you've got, even if you don't like it. You think that death is the worst thing for you.
It's very simple logic. Now, Paul is not turning that logic upside down at all by saying to die is gain. He is still saying, on its own, death is a terrifying thing. Death, for the sake of death, is not what anyone wants, and Paul doesn't want it, and the Christian doesn't want it. What he is saying is that Christ adds so much value to life and to death. We've had a hint of this already in uh, verse 20. He says, I have eager expectation that I will not be at all ashamed. Being ashamed has connotations of dying and just being left alone, left alone silently. Psalm 31 verse 17, David says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. What he's saying is, don't let me die and just be completely forgotten. Paul says he's confident that he won't be ashamed in his death because he has Christ and he has the hope of the resurrection from the grave. And because he has Christ, to die is gain. So let's ask ourselves the question, what does Paul say we gain in death? Think about that. If, you, if you're in Sunday school, you ask someone asks a question like this, you chuck your hand up and you say, Jesus, that's, that's always a very safe answer 90% of the time. You don't gain Christ in death. Big idea there too. You don't gain Christ in death because you already have him in life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. How is death gain then? You already have him. As Christians, we confess that when we die, our souls are separated from our physical bodies and we are immediately taken to the presence of Christ as we await the resurrection of our physical bodies at the last day. Why is death then an even greater gain than life? Because of what we are released from. That's the answer. Because of what we are released from. We are released and fully delivered from disease. We are delivered from pain, disappointment, oppression, persecution, unbelief, doubt, temptation, fear, anxiety, depression, all those things, all the effects of sin, we are released from them. And we are also released from the fact that we do not see our Lord face to face. We possess Him. We have Christ. But we now look with veiled face, Paul says in Second Corinthians. We live by faith. Eventually we will live by sight. We have Christ in this life. We have Christ in the next life. But we are able to say that death is a greater gain because we will enjoy Christ more fully when we are released from all the difficulties of this life. What do we gain? It's not so much what we gain, it's the fact what we lose. All the bad stuff. That's why death is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In both life and in death we have Christ. And that is why Paul says in verse 20 that Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. If I live, I bring honor to Christ. If when I die, I will be able to bring more honor to Christ because I will no longer be a sinner. 
this is a great truth because death no longer brings horror to the Christian. No longer brings horror. You ask me, am I scared of dying? I'm scared if I die brutally, sure. Am I scared of death? No. Because of Christ. To die is gained. It completely transforms the way that we look at death. Amen. Now we could end it there, but we're going to spend a little bit more time. And I want us to see through verses 22 through to 26 that despite saying this monumental truth about to live as Christ and to die as gain, despite the wonderful joy that Paul has, he is still struggling. He is not immune to reality. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And he says, I am hard pressed between the two. To live or to die. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. In the Greek, I am in dire straits. Someone smiling. My favorite rock band. Yeah? <laughs> dire straits. I am in dire straits. That triumphant saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, I'm in dire straits. Why? When we look at what he's saying, Paul has started this, he, he, he's started this like monologue that's bubbling up from within him. He's no longer giving concise, detailed theology, but instead he's saying, look, look at verse 21, for me to live, that's life, and to die is gain. And then he says, to live in the flesh, back to life, that means fruitful labor for me. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, back to death. And be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, that is more necessary in your account. Back to life. Convinced of this, I will come to you. He's thinking, life, death, life, death, life, death, over and over and over. I think what we could describe that Paul's going through here is a psychological ordeal. He is. This is a man who's probably losing sleep. And I want us to see that because we can get a feel for what it's like for Paul in prison. He's 60 years old. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned countless times. He's received lashings. He's tired. He is done with it. Fair enough. He wants to put his feet up, okay, and have a holiday somewhere sunny. I'm not disrespecting him by saying that. But he's actually saying, I'd really like to just go be with my Lord. I want to die. I want to go be with Jesus. This is not like Hamlet's famous speech, if you were at school more than 10 years ago, you don't have to remember this. But his famous speech, to be or not to be. Hamlet's saying, is life better for me or is death better for me? Is this a 50-50? Is this a 60-40? Is this a 70-30? To be or not to be? Paul's not thinking that way. 
Paul's already sorted the question. Is life better or death better? He's already sorted that question. To die is the greatest gain. He desires to be with his Lord. What is he saying though? If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's saying, I am convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is a man who wants to die. This is a man who wants to be with his Lord. But he knows that the church at Philippi are discouraged. He knows that they need encouragement. He knows that he can help them by being present with them, by praying with them, by being around them, by having potlucks with them. He's thinking like that, and he's saying, you will be encouraged by my ministry. This is not a man trying to work out between life and death. Ultimately, this is a man who's trying, who's in dire straits because of duty versus desire. He knows what he wants, but he knows also that God would have him serve still. He has years left. Duty versus desire. And Paul then believes that Christ will let him out of prison convinced of this I know I will remain and continue with you all he knows and he's still thinking I think Christ would have me go serve those people at Philippi I think this I I find that tremendously convicting he's not thinking about himself He's thinking about this people in Philippi over a thousand kilometers away. He goes, I want to get out of jail and I want to go serve these people. I want to go help them and I want to go encourage them. That's what Christ would have me do. I think this slams the modern idea that all we need to do is get people to become Christians, baptize them, and then we just kind of leave them alone and then go find some more people. We're just content with the idea of someone coming in the front door, and then who cares what happens after that? These people are Christians. They're a church. They've believed the gospel. They've been baptized. Paul doesn't say, oh, I'll just leave them. God will sort them out. He says, no. I want them to be mature. I want them to grow up. I want to see them grow in contentment. I want them to be thankful. I want them to be joy. I want them to bring Christ honor in this life because they are supremely satisfied in their Lord and Savior. I don't want them to be babies. Right? We just had a baby up the front. I mean, I hope no one wants Benji to still be 30 years old, staying at home and requiring you to make all the meals. Have the maturity of a five-year-old, perhaps. You don't want that. Because we acknowledge that baby Christians are supposed to grow up into mature ones. The children become adults. That you start off drinking milk and then you hopefully eventually eat meat. And tofu if you're vegetarian. But there's a desire here that the people would grow, that they would mature. Colossians 1.28, my goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. 
Amen. And Paul knows the only way that happens is through ministry, through prayer, through preaching, through his presence with them. And I think that's such a picture of to live as Christ at the end here. It's a picture of to live as Christ. Because Paul is saying, I want to come to you in this life to encourage you. Because this life does matter. There is such a perception out there that Christianity is simply about getting a ticket to heaven and then waiting out the rest of your days until you can cash that ticket in. Paul's saying, no, this life matters. I want to get out of prison. I'm going to come a thousand kilometers plus to get to you, and I want to encourage you because this life matters. The next life matters. This life matters. To live is Christ. For the Christian, this should be tremendously encouraging because we don't have to get nostalgic about the past. This is a church that's nine years old and they're probably remember, starting to say, oh, remember the good old days when we planted? I heard a, I heard a, heard a pastor say the other day, back in the 70s, my, ch- my church had 600 people in the Sunday school. Remember the good old days. Now we struggle to get 20. Remember the good old days. We don't need to be like that. Because because of Jesus Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain, our best days are always in front of us. That's the encouragement. There's trouble in this life, but Christ has overcome the world. The best days are always in front. And this is such a practical, practical verse. The truth of the gospel applied to our lives. We know that the best days are in front of us, and then it gives us help in the present. I'm going to close with this. Imagine you say to the Apostle Paul, we're going to throw you in jail. He says, great, the word is not bound, I will convert your jailers. He just said that. We will make your life hard, and we will torture you and beat you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I am convinced that this light momentary affliction is preparing for me a far greater weight of glory. Can't even torture him. Doesn't work. Doesn't do anything. He says, okay, we'll let you out of jail because we're sick and tired of you converting all of our jailers. Cool. I'll go encourage the church at Philippi. You say to him, we will kill you. That's how they tried to stop Paul. Nero killed him about seven years after this letter was written. You know what Paul would have said if you asked him right before his death, what he would say? He says, great, to die is gain. I get to be with my Lord. Makes you bulletproof. You don't have to disguise the reality that life is hard, but it makes you completely bulletproof in this life. And I think that is such a wonderful thing. Let's pray.